Science fiction embraces science fact. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. Europa Report is the great new movie about a human mission to Jupiter's ice-covered moon. We'll talk to its producer and director. They got a hand in creating the film, Kevin Hand. We'll welcome back this expert on Europa and other worlds suspected of hiding water oceans. Let's begin with Planetary Society senior editor, Emily Lakdawalla. She just completed another trip. Welcome back, Emily. Tell us, where were you? Well, I was in Laurel, Maryland for most of a week at a uh, meeting of scientists talking about what we can expect when New Horizons flies past Pluto two years from this month. So still two years away, but lots of preparation to be done. Is that that's really what this was about? Absolutely. You know, a flyby mission, it's going to totally revolutionize our view of Pluto, but it's really only going to make sense in the context of the observations that have been done for the decades before and the ones that will be taken for decades after New Horizons flies by, particularly for a world like Pluto that changes so slowly. We're just going to get a snapshot of its history right after summer has passed and spring is coming to the northern (laughs) hemisphere. Um, And it's just this one view that we're going to get. And we have to be able to understand what this little snapshot means in terms of Pluto's very variable weather over the course of its very long year. In what, 90 seconds maybe, uh, tell us about some of the highlights. Well, for me, I think some of the highlights were some of the questions that people really want to see answered as they fly past Pluto. I think two big ones that are very easy to understand, does Pluto have rings? Um, People have looked very hard to find them. So far, they have not detected them. But given the number of very small moons that there are and how easy it would be to get dust to come off of those things, there probably ought to be rings. And the test that's really going to tell us is when New Horizons looks back at Pluto after flying past, if they're there, we ought to see them shining, scattering light from the sun. The other big question that for me is is more exciting as a geologist is, does Pluto have and has it ever had an internal ocean? And that's a very difficult question to answer if you don't have an orbital mission with a magnetometer on it. But it turns out that the telltale feature that will probably let us know whether Pluto ever had one and whether it does have one now is impact craters and what shapes they take. If they're perfect bowls or, you know, if they haven't really modified much over time, we're looking at a very, very cold world that hasn't changed. And that means that Pluto is kind of a dead old, you know, geologically ancient world. But if those craters have relaxed and become flat, it's even possible that we can see craters like the ones that are on Europa that clearly impacted into a thin skin of ice over a subsurface ocean. It's totally possible. We won't know until we get there. So that part of the geology is going to be really exciting. That's just a sample, a taste of what Emily reported on from this uh, conference, preparing for humanity's first mission to Pluto. Uh, there's much more at the blog at planetary.org. Emily, we'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to it, Matt. She is the senior editor and our planetary evangelist at the Planetary Society and contributing editor to Sky and Telescope magazine. Up next is Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, I was hoping that maybe I could get your comment on this uh, blog entry from one of our uh, growing stable of bloggers, Van Kane, who writes about the Mars 2020 rover and the science definition team, which uh, just a couple of weeks ago started to lay out, okay, this is what we want to accomplish with this. For the first time, or at least the first time since Viking, if I'm correct, here in the goals for this mission, it says, seek the signs of life. Seek the signs of life. So for a long time, I guess this is for political reasons, Matt, people have said we're, we're going to follow the water. 
Yeah. Follow the water. And that presumed would be because that's where you'd find living things. Then now enough. They're spelling it out. Astrobiology is the goal. And you know, this is an old thing with me. If we mm -hmm. found evidence of life on that other world, it would change this one. It would change this world. It's going to be on the same chassis, if I can use that term in rover land, <laughs> as the <laughs> Curiosity rover. So, you know, Curiosity landed in a riverbed almost by accident. I mean, they were all hoping to find braided rivers, so-called uh, tributaries joining each other. You could go back to another place with an instrument that's really set up to look for for lack of a better term, fossil bacteria, fossil microbes, fossil Marscrobes. I mean, Matt, just think of it. If you showed that there was life on Mars, it would be like discovering the Earth goes around the sun instead of the other way around. I mean, it would just be extraordinary. Now, I just got to say, as the CEO of the Planetary Society, we are fighting the fight. Barbara Mikulski got some Republicans to come along with her, and they they propose that the NASA budget be over $18 billion, not under 16, which is what many of the current conservatives want it to be in keeping with the so-called sequester. But she's pushing it or she's trying to push it forward. Senator from Maryland. Yes, to increase the budget for NASA. And of course, we think that's appropriate. But man, it goes back and forth, Matt. The U.S. Senate wants this. The U.S. House of Representatives wants that. The administration puts in this and that and that and this and back and forth. But I just want you to know we are not giving up. We are going to wrestle this thing all the way to the ground. We are going to get this done, restore funding for planetary science and make sure that that Mars 2020 rover has the capability to change the world. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. You heard it. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society and the science guy. Our craft was heading for a moon of Jupiter, known as Europa. Yeah, my boy's gonna be six when I see him again. He's gonna be proud of you. Oxygen's flowing, we're good. Commencing egress. He's never gets old. Prep for orbital transfer. We are clear of Jupiter's orbit. Pitching for power descent. Ladies and gentlemen, hold on. Here we go. The best hopes of success lies under the ice. Let's go for a swim. You hear that? Are you guys seeing this? Come back to the ship now. I want to see if it's reacting to my lights. I'm going to turn them off. Compared to the breadth of knowledge yet to be known, or does your life actually matter? I always said it was worth the risk. I'll get you out of this. Talk to me! Forgive me. Does that trailer for Europa Report make it sound like just another space monster movie? Don't be fooled. This ambitious little indie film is much more than that. It's already available on demand... And on August 2nd, it begins a run in selected major market theaters. It got a good reception at Comic-Con, too. I saw it a couple of weeks ago at the Jet Propulsion Lab, where the film's two science advisors conduct their research and hope for a real mission to Jupiter's enticing moon.
Afterward, I stood out in front of the JPL visitor's entrance for a quick conversation with Europa Report's director, Sebastian Cordero, and producer, Ben Browning. I was thrilled, pretty much literally on the edge of my seat. Well, thank you very much. You know, it's one of the greatest things that, that could happen with this movie and that is happening is to have this type of response from the scientific community and to screen the film here at JPL and to, and to have people be excited about it here, I think is one of the most reward, rewarding things that, that could have happened. You put a very high value on getting things scientifically and technologically right far more than we're used to in movies of this kind. Why was this such a high priority? I think great science fiction asks the question, what if? And I think our what if became what if in the near future a group of astronauts went to a planet where real scientists believe there may be life. They went there in a way that we really think they could get there and they found something that we wonder that they may really find. And I, I think that desire to hold ourselves accountable to realism and answer the question in a, in, in a realistic way it also led to great drama. You actually responded to a question during the panel discussion we just had. Somebody said, well, how would this film have been different if Disney had given you uh, the money that they uh, spent and apparently are losing on The Lone Ranger? It didn't seem like maybe you thought it would have been all that different. I don't think so. I don't think that anything about what works or we would have done with the movie is really related to the budget. In fact, I think a great creativity comes out of constraints, whether they're budgetary, timing, um, or in the, in the case of our movie, the perspective of the film, which is a, often appropriated cameras. It's a faux documentary conceit, and you don't see everything. But I think there's a real amount of suspense and realism that comes from the fact that you don't. And I think given complete carte blanche budget-wise, we probably would not have done anything different. And certainly the things we'd have been tempted to do wouldn't have... Uh, please an audience like the one that we saw here at JPL. Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with the fact that sometimes you got to use your limitations as a, as, a, as, your, as, as a strength, you know, as something that makes the film special. To be able to integrate all this, uh, all this science data, all these elements that actually make the story more interesting in the end and more realistic uh, wasn't something that was going to cost us more money. It was, it, was, it was a conscious decision, you know, from, from the beginning. I don't think there's there's many things that I that I would have changed if if we had more more time or more money you know perhaps a couple of visual effects here and there I would have you know gone into more detail but but they're really you know very very small things. Gentlemen, I just wish you the best of luck with this and great success with uh, Europa Report. Thank you for making uh, a terrific film. Thank you very much. Thank you. Europa Report director Sebastian Cordero and producer Ben Browning. We're going to take a break and then sit down with planetary scientist and Europa expert Kevin Hand. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye here, CEO of the Planetary Society, speaking to you from Planet Fest 2012, the celebration of the Mars Science Laboratory rover Curiosity landing on the surface of Mars. This is taking us our next steps in following the water and the search for life to understand those two deep questions. Where did we come from and are we alone? This is the most exciting thing that people do. And together, we can advocate for planetary science and, dare I say it, change the world. 
Hi, this is Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society. We've spent the last year creating an informative, exciting, and beautiful new website. Your Place in Space is now open for business. You'll find a whole new look with lots of images, great stories, my popular blog, and new blogs from my colleagues and expert guests. And as the world becomes more social, we are too, giving you the opportunity to join in through Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and much more. It's all at planetary.org. I hope you'll check it out. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. No one knows what we'll someday discover in and under the thick ice that envelops Jupiter's moon Europa. Kevin Hand is one of many who dearly love to be in on that discovery. The JPL Planetary Scientist last joined us for the Planetary Radio live shows we produced at the Aquarium of the Pacific exactly one year ago. Kevin was one of two advisors who worked with the creators of the new indie film Europa Report about a human mission to that moon. I recently talked with him about the movie and the prospects for a real mission, a robotic one. Okay, I have an advantage over you, because I've seen the film. <laughs> <laughs> have you even seen footage? Yes, I've, I've seen the, I, a, the sort of extended, somewhat rough cut. I, I've probably seen everything that's in the film, but some mm. of what I've seen probably didn't make the final cut. Uh, yeah. I'll tell you, they did a damn good job. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. That's my personal opinion, obviously. But uh, I was thrilled, as I think I was supposed to be. Very exciting. And then as I was leaving, walking away from the lab yesterday, I was talking to people. What are the other movies that paid this kind of attention to getting not just the science, but also the technology right? And we thought of 2001 yep. and Apollo 13, and that was about it. <laughs> yep. And uh, at least for Apollo 13, they had actual technology yes, to reference. Right, yeah, uh, and primitive technology. Uh, and it's funny that you mentioned 2001 because uh, um, Steve Vance, uh, my friend and colleague who uh, also advised on the film, he and I uh, were both very protective of, of 2001 and, and Kubrick's uh, great job with that. In the early stages, we we banted around with these guys about uh, if you're going to do it, please try and at least – aim for a bar set by Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they did a really good job with that. The central conceit, of course, sending humans to Europa is a, is a tricky one. And we talked about that uh, in the early stages of, of the, the script writing. You know, sending humans to Europa in the early stages of Europa exploration is, is unlikely to happen. Yeah, let's, let's say, vanishingly unlikely. Yeah, right. <laughs> no. uh, but of course, you can't make a movie unless it's uh, WALL-E or something like that, <laughs> where, <laughs> where the central character is a robot. Part of what I really enjoyed about the film is that they get the characters right along mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. science. And, and this is a challenge that, that I always find with science fiction films and, and trying to provide some advice on the science and understanding the role of science in what the directors, writers, etc. want want to achieve. You know, for a movie, the story has to come first. Science is a means to an end. It's a way to motivate a, a, a plot. It's a way to expose certain aspects of the characters. Because for as much as I love Europa and science and all that, uh, people pay the money to go to movies to get told a story. And if you mess up the story, nobody's going to watch it. So I was delighted at the degree to which this team did a really nice job of of, of character development and mm. capturing the challenge and the passion of being a scientist uh, and and what that sacrifice in the name of science entails. 
so f- for me, that was kind of uh, along with seeing the the cool stuff about radiation and, and Europa's surface and all the stuff that Steve and I actually advised on. Uh, I, I was delighted to see that the characters were actually people that you cared about. I'll tell you what else. The characters, their approach to challenges, when they face a lot of challenges in this movie, I thought also really reflected very well on the scientists and engineers and pilots who make these kinds of uh, journeys. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I'd, uh, I'd agree with that. And, um, you know, you see the, the family dynamic, you see the decision-making process. Oh, goodness, I forget what the, there's a great line towards the end of the movie about that balance between sacrifice and, and great discoveries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think that sort of captures, uh, granted, I'm not going to die on the surface of Europa. Um, <laughs> Don't give anything away. <laughs> but, the, but these people sacrifice a lot. Right. Um, and that is true of what we do here at JPL and other places where mm. whether it's searching for the Higgs boson, searching for uh, life on another world, searching for planets beyond our sun, these scientific endeavors that require not just years but decades of dedication, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a very real sacrifice that, that's hard to just convey in the day-to-day life of what we do here. And so there again, I think uh, their portrayal in this film uh, helps to capture some of that, what's at stake and, 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 and the sacrifices made. And the joy of discovery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and how that, that prospect of discovery and, and, and the way the imagination can just get captivated by a seed of an idea and then that leads into missions to other worlds yeah. uh, real such as the ones we do here at JPL and imaginary mm-hmm. has depicted on the big screen all right do i need to even ask if you'd like to see a mission to europa <laughs> it's not a question of of a mission it's a matter of of how many different missions would i like to see <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and and hopefully that uh, that will become a reality in the, in the uh, both in the near and the long term i was captivated by europa back in the sort of mid-stages of Galileo when the results were coming back in the late 90s about the, uh, the electromagnetic, uh, the, the induced magnetic mm. field and the, and the real good signs for that subsurface ocean. And, and back then, I was finishing up undergrad, and the pictures that NASA was putting out were of this melt probe coming through the ice shell and finding these hydrothermal vents on the seafloor of Europa. And the date on those images was 2009. Oh, <laughs> so, so the uh, and here we are. 2009 is come and gone, and, and we still don't have a mission. Uh, not to mention a mission that could actually melt through the ice and, and really explore the ocean itself. But but as the Russians like to say, hope dies last, and and we'll mm. uh, we'll keep on pushing forward. Uh, and so the next step is uh, will hopefully be the Europa Clipper. Coupled with that, uh, we, we need to start looking at plans for landing on the surface and then melting through uh, and having a, a submersible that does go and investigate the ocean below. Just a word or two about the Europa Clipper and, and what it may be able to tell us from orbit, right? That's right. It'll make flybys of Europa. The notional payload will be able to analyze the surface chemistry, take incredible imagery of the surface, and use ice-penetrating radar to uh, investigate uh, ice and liquid water interfaces, be they uh, the ocean ice shell interface or pockets of water trapped in the ice shell itself. 
So even from orbit, we can do, or even with, with flybys, uh, we can do incredibly compelling scientific investigations that can help us better characterize the habitability of Europa and potentially inform us about possible subsurface inhabitants. And part of what I'm working on here at JPL is spectrometer development that could help reveal some of that surface chemistry and, and help us learn more about the, the habitability and, and possible inhabitants of that ocean. In a perfect world, how would you hope that a film like this might affect people's thinking about what you would like to see happen? Well, one of the um, aspects that never ceases to amaze me, but of course this is an example of how we as the science community just become so embedded in our own knowledge of what's out there. You know, when I talk to people, when I talk to the public or politicians or et cetera, and, and just mention the simple fact we know or we have very good reason to believe that vast liquid water oceans exist out there in our solar system. I like how you're a good scientist. You still backed off from we know to. <laughs> <laughs> we have very good reason to believe that these oceans exist. But just the simple, uh, the, 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 the simple knowledge of um, the fact that our solar system has other oceans, uh, oceans uh, beyond Earth's ocean, once I communicate that to audiences, you start to see these light bulbs go on. That, that mm. They start to scratch their heads and be like, wait, like water oceans? And I say, yeah, yeah good old-fashioned H2O. Well, that's, uh, that's what we're talking about. Then you can almost see the aha moment of, wait a minute, if liquid water exists out there in our solar system, then we darn well better get out there and start exploring it and searching for, for life. And that's much of what obviously motivates my interest is the prospect of finding living life, life that's alive today that we can poke and prod at and, and see whether or not it's, it's running on the DNA, RNA, protein paradigm that we know rules all life on Earth. You know, is there a different game in town? Is there a different way to get the business of life done? Uh, is the origin of life easy or hard? Does life arise where, wherever and whenever the conditions are right? Mm. All of these questions converge on Europa. Once people hear uh, that aspect of, of why we are so fascinated with this world, uh, they're on board. They're excited about uh, getting out there and exploring uh, this, this curious little moon. Kevin, I hope you don't have to wait too many more years before you can give us that real-world Europa report. <laughs> well, likewise. I, I, I hope it's uh, uh, sooner as opposed to later, and I hope that we can get all of this fantastic exploration done in the, in the next few decades. It is a pleasure talking with you, Kevin. Pleasure of mine, and, uh, and uh, thanks to the Planetary Society for continuing to do great work. Kevin Hand is the Deputy Chief Scientist for Solar System Exploration at JPL. Bruce Betts is next. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, is sitting across from me in the, the conference room slash library here at the Planetary Society in beautiful Pasadena, California. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. What's up? Planet craziness. Planet craziness, my friend. Five, all five planets you can see with just your eyes are visible now. You have to catch two of them in the evening. So Venus, low in the west after sunset. Also, we've got Saturn, yellowish, in the south, 
But in the pre-dawn, we've got three planets hanging out in the east uh, not too long before sunrise. We've got super bright Jupiter. We've got reddish Mars near it. And low down, we've got Mercury for the next week or week or so. So go, go see some planets. August 4th, we actually add the crescent moon in the pre-dawn sky along with the three planets. Anywhere nearby? Right nearby. Cool. It's hanging out in the pre-dawn sky for most of the for the whole week, but it it goes and plays on the third and fourth with the planets. Get yourself a telescope, or get out somebody who has one, and you'll see that moon Europa uh, that we uh, talked about uh, this week. But only if you look at the planet Jupiter. That's that right. Telescope. <laughs> it won't help to look at the crescent moon. <laughs> no, no, not at all. All right, we move on to this week in space history. It was uh, 2004 that the Messenger spacecraft launched to Mercury, and it is uh, busily orbiting Mercury and returning great data mapping the planet. And 2007, Phoenix launched this week, headed to Mars, to the uh, near polar regions, and uh, had a very successful mission. All right, on to... That was painful. That was painful. You okay? Uh, No, not really. Pluto, Pluto's largest moon, Charon, Eris, and six other trans-Neptunian objects, all larger than the largest asteroid Hmm. series. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and so just something to keep in mind. Significantly larger. Pluto around, and Eris around 2,300 kilometers and Ceres are a little over 900 kilometers. For those who want to call Ceres a dwarf planet, they, they can call it that or Pluto or Eris. And more to come. Do you know anything about this moon of Neptune that was just discovered? Yeah, we go way back. <laughs> I went to grade school with his brother. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really small. It's the uh, 14th moon discovered at Neptune. and it, Well, it's really small, but my little uh, random space fact about that is it's, it's about the size of Mars' moon Phobos. So it's a tiny moon for Neptune, but it's the size of, of a Mars moon. Uh, we move on to the trivia contest. I asked you, how long were Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin separated from the command module? In other words, how long was their jaunt down to the moon's surface and back? How would we do, Matt? Good response, uh, as usual, to this, but some disagreement about the answer. My theory is, because I didn't look it up, that the people who were not on the money or on the shirt, I guess I should say, we're looking at the amount of time on the surface of the moon because the majority of people and our winner today came up with about 27 hours and 40 to 50 minutes, give or take. Indeed. So they spent a little over a full day off on their little their journey. It was a day trip. Kind of a significant day. Um, <laughs> the, the guy who won, yeah. first-time winner out of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, Luca Ruscino, who, in fact, said 27 hours and 49 minutes, which seemed to be the plurality of uh, answers, 1.46 p.m. July 20, and redocked with the command module at 5.35 p.m. July 21st. He was struck by how little time Armstrong and Aldrin actually spent walking around on the surface, just about two and a half hours, a single excursion. And my theory is that NASA cared a lot more about getting them home than having them spend much time strolling. 
Well, that's definitely true. The whole goal was get there, grab some stuff, and get out of there on the first one. By the time they went to Apollo 17, then they had three excursions and many hours and a lunar rover and all sorts of good stuff. It was clearly a good plan. Uh, Luca, we're going to send you the brand new redesigned Planetary Radio t-shirt. All right, everybody. Here's a new question. Uh, Listen carefully. What does the mission insignia, for example, it was used on a, a patch. What is the mission? Ins- what did, did the mission insignia for Skylab Two say on it, besides having the crew members' names? So, other than the crew members' names, what did the mission insignia for Skylab Two say on it? Go to planetary.org/radiocontest. You have until Monday, August fifth, at two p.m. Pacific time, to uh, get us the answer to this one. All right, everybody, go up there. Go up there. Go out there. Why not? I want to go up there. Look out in the night sky and think about uh, whether you'd use a coaster for your drink in space. Thank you. Good night. I'll tell you, if Bill Nye's there, you're going to use a coaster. (laughs) Bruce Betts is the director of projects for the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by a grant from the Kenneth T. and Eileen L. Norris Foundation and by the probing members of the Planetary Society. Clear skies and ice. Planetary.